0: You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part two of a series in the Book of Esther. Esther chapter two, verse one. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, and what he had, what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their, co- let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of vashti This pleased the king and he did so. We'll pause there after verse 4 of Esther chapter 2. Now in the last episode I introduced the historical uh, situation at the time of the book of Esther. I said that it's uh, King Ahasuerus is to be identified with King Xerxes who became king of Persia in 486. Uh, We read in chapter one of the third year of his reign, which was when he finally was able to stabilise his kingdom. Uh, And as I said in that episode, we'll find that this chapter takes us to the seventh year of his reign, which is significant because in between those two dates, he's been trying to conquer Greece with some initial successes and then being defeated. And so he now comes back to find solace in his harem. But this character of Ahasuerus, we've already seen in chapter one that he summoned Vashti who refused to come to the feast that he was given, a drunken feast. He wanted to treat her like an object and she wouldn't play along. Um, but also that the king is very uh, very given to following the advice of others he's a kind of weak willed character who who goes with whichever adviser has his ear and that 's a very significant thing because the plot of this story of Esther hinges on that fact that the king uh, can be turned by his advisers that's what happens in the passage we've just read as well. The young men who attended to the king could see that uh, he was still annoyed at what had happened with Vashti, and uh, perhaps he's upset because of his failures in Greece. If this is already after that uh, time, it may not be. It may be that this is uh, before he goes off to Greece. But anyway, the point is that um, His anger has abated. He remembers fasting and his young men come and they get his ear and they say, well, here's what you should do. You should gather all the beautiful young virgins from across your empire and bring them to your harem or or, um, uh, and then uh, give them cosmetics. And then you can choose which one pleases you the most. So this is the, the action that of course only one of those ancient despots, autocratic rulers could take. It's outrageous by our modern standards but it's the way power functioned in the ancient world and particularly the way a powerful man could function as regards women. Let's read on then Esther chapter 2 verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. We'll pause there after uh, verse 11 of Esther chapter 2. So here in verse 5, we're introduced to a new character, Mordecai. It's it's probably uh, actually uh, the native name um, from, I think, the Elamite language, which is uh, one of the regions of Persia, Marduka. Uh, so it's not a Hebrew name, but probably a name that he's taken, like many of those um, men who were in exile Uh, we saw that i mentioned that in the book of daniel yesterday those daniel or in the last episode rather daniel and his friends were given names from the babylonian empire but mordecai uh, has a a heritage he is uh, a jew uh, and this word Jew is quite significant. It's it's not a word that is used in older, earlier stages of the history of God's people. Normally in the Old Testament, they're called Israelites. And it's only really at this point, uh, at the time of uh, later exile and the return from exile, that they begin to be called Jews. The word Jew comes from the name Judah the name of the tribe and of the country that was named after. And of course, Jews were the people who were exiled uh, from that country of Judah. That's what they became known as. The people from the northern kingdom that had been known as Israel or Ephraim had uh, really been dispersed and lost their identity. And so although Mordecai is not from the tribe of Judah, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, because he, he, his family were taken into exile from Judah they too were known as Jews And of course, that's the the background. And the other thing to say about this term Jew is that uh, at this point, Jew really refers largely to an ethnic group. But it's also beginning to take on a a religious identity, to become a religious label. And we get some clues even in the book of Esther that there were people who uh, identified as Jews who may not have been descendants of the original 12 tribes of the family of Abraham and the the sons of Abraham's grandson uh, Jacob or Israel. Uh, In other words, it was becoming possible for people to convert to the religion of Judaism and therefore to be identified as as a Jew. Uh, And that sort of combination of ethnic identity and religious identity continues to be true for the people we call Jews today who are largely descended from these same people uh, or at least those who uh, were even at this time had gone back to Jerusalem and were still living in various parts of the Persian Empire, what we call the diaspora spread out across um, the empire. But um, we shouldn't say that Jews today or the Jewish religion today is identical to their religion, but we're beginning to see the narrowing from Israelites to the the Jewish identity and the fact that that is a combination of ethnicity and religion. Specifically, we we discover that uh, this man Mordecai is a descendant of Kish, who is a, a Benjamite. And this makes a connection with us for one of the most, or with one of the most famous Benjamites, King Saul, the first Saul, uh, first king, rather, of the nation of Israel. Uh, If you read in 1 Samuel 9, you'll find that Saul's father was called Kish. Now, whether it's exactly the same Kish or not, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, the son of a man called Kish. Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin and a descendant of a man called Kish. So he's probably a kind of distant relative of Saul. And it's unlikely that Saul or Mordecai was the one who was taken into exile. The exile of King Jeconiah took place in 597, BC. that's the middle of the three exiles the first was in 606 when Daniel and others were taken then King Jeconiah was taken in 597 and the kingdom was allowed to rumble on for a while until 586 when Nebuchadnezzar finally destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem um, so that's uh, 596 we're now at this time in the 470s uh, and Mordecai would have to be incredibly old Uh, At this point, to still be active, I think it's clear that he's not the one taken into exile. It's one of his uh, ancestors, perhaps even the Kish who's mentioned, who was taken into captivity. So uh, here is a a Jew who has his lineage. He's somehow related or distantly related to King Saul, the first king of Israel. Uh, And that will also become significant a little later when we're introduced to his enemy uh, Haman. But uh, here is is a Jew in exile, uh, and he's bringing up his his relative, Hadassah, who is also called Esther. Esther may well be a Persian name as well. Both her name and Mordecai are probably related to some of the gods who were worshipped in that part of the world, just as the names that were given to Daniel and his friends uh, were also derived from the names of Babylonian gods. Esther is described as the daughter of his uncle, so she's a cousin or perhaps a a niece of Mordecai. Uh, She's certainly younger than he is because he becomes a father figure to her when she is orphaned. And we're told that she is beautiful, a beautiful figure and lovely to look at in verse 7. That too is significant because that's going to be her gateway to uh, the royal palace. When the king is, uh, king issues his edict to find all the beautiful young women, uh, then Esther is taken by, uh, into the king's palace and put in the custody of Hegai, who is the eunuch who watches over the harem. So she's taken away from her relative Mordecai, but Mordecai uh, tells her as she's going, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. Verse 10, Uh, perhaps because he was afraid of uh, hostility towards the Jews, it seems that there is a kind of uh, general background of people being hostile. Maybe Mordecai has good reason to be aware of that. Certainly when his enemy uh, Haman is introduced, we discover that there were people who had a very intense hatred of the Jews. So probably to protect Esther against uh, discrimination to uh, to protect her against those who would be hostile to the Jews, Mordecai tells her to keep that a secret. And that becomes important again for the story. The king doesn't know that Esther is Jewish. There's an element of suspense here. But Mordecai keeps in touch with his relative Esther. He walks in front of the court of the harem to learn how she is and what is happening to her, verse 11 tells us. And what's happening to her is that Esther is standing out amongst all of these young women who have been gathered by Hegai. Uh, She pleases him. She wins his favour. And so he provides her with cosmetics and her portion of food and seven chosen young women from the palace and advances her to the best place. And the Esther is doing very well. Now she's doing well in a far from ideal situation. In fact, in a situation that is putting her really from a, a biblical uh, point of view in, a, in an ungodly place. Uh, kings don't have harems just so that they can look at the women she is going to be a, a sexual object for the king. Uh, and so this is a young woman whose virtue really is, is, is on the line. She's not able to live faithfully uh, in her um, to, to the law. Even the food that she's given, it says she's given her portion of the food. We don't read of her doing what Daniel and his friends did in the book of Daniel, where they refused to eat meat Uh, because they wanted to keep separate from food that might have been offered to idols or that wasn't slaughtered according to the Old Testament law in a kosher way. Now Esther, whether she doesn't have the freedom to say no or doesn't think to say no, she has compromised the law of God. She's not living according to it, not uh, keeping her food separate uh, and presumably becoming sexually involved with a non-Israelite in a context that is Uh, is not part of God's ideal. But Esther is very much, as we would look at it today, a victim in this situation. She doesn't really have a choice in the matter. And we could imagine, of course, that a woman in this situation might give up on her distinctive identity, might just go along with what has to be, might get absorbed into this dominant culture that surrounds her. I mean, after all, although it is a far from ideal situation and not one of her choosing, she does have seven chosen young women who seem to be servants to her. She might even see this as an opportunity for her own advancement. Let's read on Esther chapter 2 verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, he was she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in. And in the morning she would return to the second harem in, in the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. We'll pause there after verse 14. What a horrendous system. These women lined up, beautified for 12 months in this rigorous kind of beautifying process or so they thought Uh, and then taken in for one night allowed to take whatever she desired presumably to try and impress the king Uh, and I think we're not supposed to think that she goes in one evening and comes out the next morning untouched no uh, the, the king uses those women and then dismisses them off to a different harem the house of the concubines they're the used ones and they might never be summoned again by the king unless they have particularly impressed him he has to summon them by name otherwise they're just going to live out their days in this uh, uh, harem for the used people verse 15 of Esther chapter 2 when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. We'll pause there after verse 18 of Esther chapter 2. So here is Esther and notice her wisdom. Not only is Esther stunningly beautiful and she clearly is. I mean, she's gaining favour with everyone, but it's not just a beauty of appearance. There is a beauty of character. I think that's implied in verse 15 when it says she won favour in the eyes of all who saw her. Yes, she is beautiful to look on, but that beauty is more than skin deep. When people get to know her, there is an attractiveness in her character. But supreme in her character qualities is wisdom. Why? Because when she's given the opportunity to go in, she doesn't decide what she will take. She asks for advice from Hegai the eunuch she says, what would you take? What do you think I should take? This man has been watching women going in uh, one after the other for a long time. He has some sense of what is likely to impress the king. He knows which women have been invited back and he knows therefore what the king likes. And Esther follows his advice. A wise woman, a woman in a situation not of her choosing, a situation that is not ideal, A situation where her virtue is on the line because effectively she can be used by this king. Uh, But a woman of wisdom, a woman of grace and favour. And the king recognises that and he sets the royal crown or the footnote tells us it might be a, a headdress rather than a crown on her head. He makes her his first or primary queen instead of Vashti. Now, that doesn't mean that she becomes the, uh, the, the the mother of his children. It seems that his successor, Artaxerxes, was already born before Esther, uh, before this occasion. But uh, she is going to have a position of prominence uh, and of, of potential influence. And the king gives a feast for her. Uh, and he also gives a tax break, making Esther no doubt even more po- popular. What else? Could do that uh, across his provinces and gives gifts the king is delighted with esther he's delighted with this woman who he is fine but he has no idea that she is jewish and as i've said uh, before this happens in the seventh year of his reign this is a king who has come back from defeat in greece and who now is finding consolation in uh, in this woman esther this most beautiful attractive uh, gracious of women Let's continue our reading then in Esther chapter 2 verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, And we'll end our reading there at the end of Esther chapter 10, 20, uh, chapter 2, that's verse 23. So here is Mordecai keeping in touch with Esther. He's going to the king's gate. Here is Esther being the dutiful adopted daughter, obeying her, her, her adoptive father, who is her cousin or uncle. And, and uh, that, of course, is another sign of her virtue as well as the wisdom we've already seen. Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate so a place on the way into the palace and probably a place where much business was done and much was discussed and he hears uh, the conversation presumably between Bigthan and Teresh or perhaps others talking about what they've heard these two eunuchs say and Mordecai realizes that Bigthan and Teresh are plotting to assault and presumably assassinate the king and when he becomes aware of it he tells Esther, Esther tells the king, but gives the credit to Mordecai. There's an investigation, it's found to be true, and the two men are either hanged on the gallows, or as the footnote says, it could mean that they're suspended on a stake. Certainly they're put to death on something wooden, something tree-like. That could be by hanging or by impaling. Uh, Quite disturbing isn't it to even think of it but this is a a a public shaming it's uh, we'll come across that again later on in the book of Esther this is a a favored way of putting to death people who are uh, are seen as as threats to the king as uh, guilty of um of treason and it's recorded in the book of the chronicles in the presence of the king that's significant as, as well the the beauty of this storytelling is that every little detail will become significant later on in the story so the book of chronicles is mentioned in fact we get a mention towards the very end of esther in chapter 10 of of mordecai and his deeds being recorded in a chronicle book books that we don't have available to us Uh, they haven't survived through history unless they're unearthed at some point in the future which is the main reason why we don't have external historical sources telling us about mordecai but what we see here is Mordecai, who, despite being Jewish and therefore an underdog, is uh, loyal to the king, is acting wisely. We have Esther in the right position to pass on the knowledge he has received. We have a reason why the king should be or should feel indebted to Mordecai. And of course, we might expect that the next thing we read would be about Mordecai being promoted or given a position of prominence. That's not what happens. What we're going to read in the next chapter is that a different man is promoted Haman the Agath- Agagite but just as we recap on chapter two here is Esther raised into this position close to the king Uh, we don't read about God doing that but we we know as Christians as as people immersed in the scriptures that come before and after the book of Esther that God is working sovereignly through these circumstances here is a Jew not known to be a Jew by the king or his officials but a Jew in a place of prominence here is Mordecai her her adoptive father staying faithful to her and Esther faithful to him uh, and so within the constraints of what is possible, although she is not living according to the Old Testament law, she's retaining her identity and her loyalty. And Mordecai is loyal to the king as the exiles had been commanded to be by the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29. You can read about how God told the people through the, the prophet to be Good citizens in exile to seek the prosperity of the city. Mordecai is doing that. He doesn't know at this point how important that earlier act of loyalty will be. It will prove to be important. But simply, Mordecai and Esther in the right place at the right time, as we'll see, but in the place that they had no choice about, but the place where God can use them. And what a challenge that is for us. Sometimes we might not be in the place of our choosing. Sometimes we might feel hemmed in by our circumstances. But God is faithful and God has a purpose for you. And God has you in the place where you are at the time when you are there for his purpose. So stop thinking about the places where you aren't. The opportunities that aren't open to you. The freedom that you think you should have but don't. Think about the opportunities you do have. The job that you are in, the family that you are part of, the neighbourhood that you live in, the church that I hope you're part of. What are the opportunities that are before you? Who is before you that the Lord might use you to be a blessing to? You don't have to be a queen to have influence. You don't have to be a queen to be used by God. Start to say, well, look, where am I and how can I be faithful how can I be like Mordecai or like Esther? How can I just in that place be the person that God has placed me there to be? It's hard, isn't it, in in our post-Christian contexts in the Western world. We feel often we can't speak openly about God. Esther can't do that in her situation. The book of Esther doesn't even name God. But we can be an influence for godliness. We can be loyal to our families. We can uphold the identity of God's people, the distinctive values of God's people. And when we have an opportunity, we can speak of Jesus and share him with others. But first and foremost, we must simply be faithful and honourable people where God has placed us.